One of the things I, I think people need to talk about more is the pressure that this puts on the people around you, on your partner, on your on your family. Like, it's really hard for them too. And you know, you you read about Bob's growth, and you think, oh, what a success story! It must everything must have been plain sailing. But I have made hundreds and hundreds of mistakes, and I feel terrible about that because it has impact on people's lives. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders. Today's guest is Hayden Wood, the CEO and co-founder of the UK's fastest growing private company, Bulb. They are the UK's biggest green supplier, having grown their members to 1.7 million and still growing. They aim to help its customers save money and emissions. Now, the company was founded in 2015 by Hayden Wood and Amit Goodka, and it has grown rapidly since then to a team of over 700 people based in London, France, Spain, and the USA. The company aims to use technology to reduce costs, improve efficiency, and customer service. It supplies its customers with 100% renewable electricity from solar, wind, and hydro. Its gas supply is 100% carbon neutral. 10% is green gas produced from renewable sources like food or farm waste, and the rest is offset by supporting carbon reduction projects around the world. So what does it take to build Britain's fastest growing company? We're going to find out today. Hayden, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hello. Now that I've said all of that, you don't really need to describe anything about what Bulb does because I've succinctly said it all. So we can just talk about other stuff. Yeah, I'm just going to, can I just, can I leave now? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> We've had our fill of you, mate. Thank you. Dan, I wish I could introduce Bulb as well as you've done. I'm very envious. Mate, I wish I could introduce Heights as well as I introduce Bulb. So <laughs> I, I completely understand the problem. Right. We're going to quick off, we're going to start things off with a quick fire round, um, you know, just to make sure you're warmed up and glowing full of green energy. So first question, cats or dogs? Dogs. British gas or EDF? British gas. <laughs> is, that just, is that just pure because you're British? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a European. You are for another few months. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more of a state of mind. Sure. Okay, Apple or Google? Google. Three years at LSE or three years at Bain? Oh, tough one. They're both great and also quite similar. Uh, three years at Bain. Okay. Remote working culture or office-based culture? Office-based culture. And you're stuck on a deserted island for the next five years. What three things are you bringing? I'd probably take a book, The Complete Works of Jonathan Swift. I would take a luxury maybe a bath even though I, I even though i never really use the, ba the bath in general yeah nice no, super practical to bring a bath with you to a desert island no water around and then despite oh i've wasted my my second my second wish because i was going to say some kind some kind of telecommunication device if it makes you feel better i feel like you wasted your first wish as well because instead of bringing a book you could have just brought like a kindle with loads of battery but you just chose i presume that there was 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 limited 3g on the on the island. i just presumed as the you know founder of britain's fastest growing company and biggest energy supply you might have figured out how to make energy work on the fucking island mate jesus christ well that's why i didn't take any energy and brought a bath. things <laughs> i think about you know a bath could be used to produce energy we could create a little hydroelectric plant with it Okay, good. Now you're thinking. And what was the third item then? Yeah, I think I think some some sort of communication device, maybe a, some some bottles in which to put messages. 
Very good. Okay. I like I like the analog approach on the last one for sure. <laughs> As opposed to my totally digital bath. Just in case. <laughs> it's very true. All right. We're gonna crack on with the show. Hopefully we've got better answers coming up. Some, you know, I think I guess I guess speaking from personal experience is perhaps more your kind of bag. So we'll we'll see. LSE, Monitor Group, then Bain. So not a very uncommon route for a successful startup founder. Um, I guess the question being, did you always have your sights set on this specific path? Like, what did your parents want you to do? What was your upbringing like, etc.? It was more accidental than planned. I loved being a, a management consultant. I found the job fascinating. But Starting Bold was more of a we just found this Amit and I found this problem that we couldn't resist and we, we had to work on it. And so that's why I, I sort of made that career change. When I was a kid, my parents wanted me to be a lawyer. Uh, they weren't super pushy, but that's what, that's what they thought would be good. I think because my dad was always just amazed at legal fees and just assumed that that would be a great, great, great thing to do. But I am dyslexic and I think uh, you know, having a forensic knowledge uh, or understanding of words, which I think you need as a lawyer, is not my strong point. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I spent more time in spreadsheets and that's why I ended up doing what I was doing. And um, do, you, do you have siblings? Like, what's your actual family unit like? I do, I do. I've got a, my, I've got a, a younger brother, Reese, who is a, a founder as well, which is quite unusual, I think. Uh, yeah, he, he founded a brewery in Peckham. Which is called? Thank you, Dan. Yes. Reese's Brewery is called Bianca Road, and they brew outstanding American beers inspired by his uh, his cycle trip across the US. Okay, now talk to us about your, if you'll pardon the pun, light bulb moment and your inspiration for starting Bulb. Was that a long, slow journey of thoughts over a 10-year stint in management consulting, or was it literally a single spark of inspiration? It was probably more on the, on the spark side. So I worked on a project when I was a management consultant. It was a short project. I was maybe doing it for three months. I didn't spend a lot of time in... When you work in these jobs, I was at Monitor Group first and then Bain. I, I, combined, I was working in, in consulting for 10 years. You work on lots of different business, clients in lots of different industries on lots of different problems. And... Uh, and I hadn't spent much time in energy at all. So I did a three-month project in, in energy. And then my friend Amit and I, within our group of friends, we probably had two of the more corporate jobs. We would talk about work. And then as soon as he found out that I was yeah, working on an energy project, that's what we talked about because he was an energy trader at one of the banks. And really, the idea for Bob, I remember you know, Amit and I had lunch on a weekday. He kind of came over to the part of town where the, where the uh, Bain office was and we sat down and it was that, that, that lunch where we really, where the idea for creating an energy supplier came from. Um, so it wasn't a, a 10 year, a 10 year sort of plan. It was really, I did this project and then about six months later, we had that lunch and, and then started working on it as a, as a sort of project on the side. And just like give us an idea like, or, or rather play back that, that lunch, that fateful moment, because obviously, you know, 
these are the moments that you know that shape you as as founders and completely change your your course of your life your destiny etc and was that a really exciting motivating lunch together or was it sort of just like some throwaway comments and then this kind of idea that percolated and couldn't really leave your minds and what were your next steps so i guess really take us from that lunch up until uh, raising your first round and how you went about that process from you know zero to 0.5. I'm so glad we talked about spreadsheets earlier because spreadsheets are, are the a spreadsheet was the vehicle uh, that took us from the lunch to, to the fundraise. So the lunch was probably I would say May of 2014 and we started our fundraise in January of 2015. What we did after that lunch was work out would bold by using technology in a way that other energy companies hadn't used it before, would bold have a cost advantage versus all other energy suppliers? Would we be able to supply renewable electricity to people's homes? and not only cut their carbon emissions to zero, but also help them save money on their bills. We thought that if we could do both of those things, we would convince people to switch and we would have a business that would have, a, have an impact. So in order to confirm that cost advantage, we built the profit and loss statement for an energy company. And we went through every single line, it ended up being a 500 line model we built every single line for, for what our competitors uh, would experience and for what Bold would experience. And that was it. So we went, we worked on that spreadsheet for about four months, five months. And then at that from that point, then we started to go out and share it with investors and talk about what our business plan might be. But everything other than the spreadsheet was, was sort of, yeah, quite, um, I mean, we ended up raising our, our seed round with, a 15 slide PowerPoint presentation. That was it. That was all we had. We had the presentation and the model that we'd been working on. And who did you go to? Like, how did you know? Did you know angel investors? I mean, this wasn't really your world, but I guess if you come from a management consulting background, you might know some people that might be in the market for angel investing. Like, what was your approach um, to get into this space? Yeah, so this is where, yeah, we just went through, Amit and I'd recently both been married. <laughs> so so we spoke to all the people, all the friends and family that we knew, saw if they were interested in investing. I was re that I found that really intimidating, the idea of losing the money of some of my friends and family from a failed business investment, I found petrifying. We went out and spoke to those people. By that point, we were both confident that we could, we could break even you know our original plan was to add 20,000 customers a year and we were we were confident that we could do that we would do that by taking a tiny sliver of the, the total number of switches in the market we were really supported by this government the UK government scheme called EIS which is the enterprise investment scheme it, it means that there's uh, a tax break for people who want to invest in, in new businesses and yeah, we just went out and spoke to uh, spoke, spoke to a lot of friends and family. And, and Amit's former colleagues from when he was an energy trader at one of the banks were the most important angel investors that, that we had at the start. They um, they provided a, a lot of the funding, and I think that it, they understood the industry a lot a lot better than 
you know the average person does because they they've been working in it on the wholesale trading side for a long time. And what was your actual process with the like? I guess my question would be, what was the pitch? Do you remember it? This is always quite good fun to try and remember what the hell you were actually saying to people to to get their money, uh, or what was the elevator pitch almost? And then how much did you actually raise at seed? And then like what we what, just to take us through a snapshot. What have been your funding journeys since then? And then we'll come back to this moment just to give some idea of of how things have moved. So the pitch was energy's broken customers are really unhappy they're overpaying energy suppliers are using old technology they're very disorganized they're unable to change they're uninterested in changing and we think that we can create an energy supplier that meets these you know these unmet customer needs we the the other really important part of the pitch was we was we saw a change in the way the energy system was going to work so back in the 80s and 90s you had this hugely centralized energy systems large power stations outside of cities producing power using fossil fuels shipping it over a grid into people's homes and people's homes were really they would just import energy from the grid and people didn't really understand what they what their usage was but that was changing we saw that all the new technology from solar panels and batteries and smart meters changing the relationship that homes have with the grid and this is that we, we had this chart that we spent a lot of time talking about in our presentation which is the home of the future where there are solar panels on the roof there's an electric vehicle in the driveway and that home would need an energy supplier that it could trust because its energy needs would need to be managed. It wasn't just importing energy from the grid all the time. That home and that customer would be exporting energy onto the grid sometimes. And in order to, to provide those management services, we thought that uh, you know, a modern energy supplier was required. And that was, that was the, the combination of our cost advantage and, uh, and the changing nature of the industry. That was what gave us the courage to, to launch. We, we raised 1.3 million pounds. Um, we put our own money in as well. I think that meant a lot for our investors when they found out that we were investing our, our savings into this. And then that we knew that was enough money to get to, tw- well, we, we knew, we thought that was enough money to get to 23,000 customers. And at 23,000 customers, we thought we could break even. It's still quite aggressive, 23,000 customers. It's not a small amount of, of people if you consider what Bulb is. It's not 23,000 people just buying something. It's 23,000 people changing something they find to be a pain in the ass, even calling up to change in the first place. So I get that it's super sticky, but it's really interesting that that was an initial target because it's suitably aggressive for venture scale, but arguably too aggressive. It seems quite hard. I, I mean, it was hard in the first... So we launched and in the first six months, we created, we had this product. It was great. It was saving people money, it was cutting their carbon emissions. It was a really simple sign up experience and no one switched. We were getting like 10 switches a week. We just weren't getting any traction. And it was really worrying because we we were thinking, good grief, we have to sign up 23,000 customers in the next nine months. And we've only got 300. And we, I remember that first year was just so unbelievably stressful because we were running these growth experiments, trying to get people to change. And, and, it, and I remember at the time thinking, this is, 
this is quite difficult because we're asking people to take something that they really care about deep down, which is, you know, is their heating going to come on? Are the lights going to come on? And we're asking them to go to switch from a big supplier that they know then they're not happy with, but at least they know that the lights are going to stay on and the, and the, the heating will work. And they're risking that and switching to this un, completely unknown to s- supplier. And a lot of the feedback we got in the early days was, sounds too good to be true. Like, where's the catch? Doesn't make sense. You know, I, if, why are you doing this? Why, why hasn't somebody else done it before? So, yeah, so we, you know, I remember we had days when we would go into, <laughs> we went into the canteen of KPMG, uh, one day and tried to get people to switch there we thought oh we'll just we'll do like face-to-face sales we'll see if that works we'll do an experiment and we got like one person to switch and it was the person we got to switch was my old housemate from uni who i bumped into in the canteen that was it <laughs> it was uh it was really tricky what we what we learned though through those experiments was that you need you know you need to have trust you need to have all these trust ind- indicators through the sign up process on your website people need to see third path you know other reliable sources give you a, give you a recommendation in order for you to switch we discovered that word of mouth was very important and as soon as you get over those initial barriers then people w- would open up by the end of the first year we were we were getting to the sorts of sign up numbers that we needed and then the volume ended up being it ended up growing geometrically um, and we ended up signing up a lot of customers through some of the big channels like price comparison sites and collective switches and so after the first it was all backloaded into the last three months but we had our 20 23,000 customer target that is incredible If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. 
And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Can you give us some insights into some of the actual experiments and how you set up the process as well for anyone else that's uh, going through like an early stage uh, concept and wants to hit the kind of dizzying heights of, uh, of a bulb? a bulb experience in the first year of actually being a startup that hits the numbers they said they would. So what we did was uh, we just had a long, we just had this massive brainstorm. We had this long list of ideas and we just went out and and experimented with them. The one experience that I would share, the thing that we learned going through that process that I is probably written in the book, but I just didn't pick it up is to focus on growth ideas that are repeatable and scalable so visiting a company canteen and setting up a stall and trying to sell there probably not the best sales channel because if it succeeds you're just going to then have to employ hundreds and hundreds of people to go and stand in office canteens and and the, the rate at which you can test and learn on a sales channel like that is just nowhere near as good as advertising on the internet or on uh, you know search engine advertising or social media advertising or uh, referral marketing and so what we found at the end of the 12 months was that the um, the more digital scalable channels were much more they were the experiments that we should run first the other actually there's two two lessons that I'll share the other lesson is i was doing our search engine advertising at the at the start and I had an, I had my, my old boss from, from Bain, uh, who had, uh, when I'd left to start Bold, Joe uh, had left and joined Google. And I called Joe one day and I said, Joe, I know you keep on telling me over a beer that like, Google provides an incredible service, but let me tell you, it's no good for, for us in our, in our business trying to sign up customers. And, uh, and he just sort of, I told him a little bit about the experience we were having. He just said, Hayden, you're just, you're just not doing it right. And then when they were very kind, they advised us on how best to spend all of our money with them and ended up making it work. So the, the other tip I would say is like, don't, in the interest of experimenting, you, sh- you do need to discount things and say they don't work, but make sure that you, that you do do a proper experiment and give something a proper go. And in my case, I, I hadn't done that. We realized at the end of that first 12 months that we could actually grow faster than, uh, than the 20,000 customers. Uh, a year that, that that we had planned. So at that stage, we begun planning a, a, another funding round. And this was growth funding because we'd reached break even. We knew that we weren't going like, to lose all of our investors' money, which is a relief. But looking at the unit economics of our customers, we knew that if we added more capital to the business, we could add customers faster and make the business more valuable and help more people lower their bills and lower their carbon emissions. So it was at that point that we then did our second funding round we were aiming to raise five and a half 5.7 million pounds in that round and the idea was to spend it on customer acquisition and technology and uh and we went to a lot of vc funds at that time and they all said mm, we haven't seen an energy business before doesn't look great we'll we're gonna pass um, so it was in that second round. I'm super surprised. I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't convince anyone. I think if you're an investor, you're looking for 
patterns and you know you look for the things that you've seen in the past succeed uh, so a lot of people were just a lot of people were investing in e-commerce and fintech at that time and that's that's what they were that's where their, their money was going but we got a series of high net worth individuals to to invest at that stage um i think that they they liked the fact that we had done what we said we would do in our first funding round that was apparently i didn't realize this but that's quite unusual and a lot of the a lot of those individuals liked our mission they liked the fact that we were a slightly different different business and they liked the traction they liked the fact that we were signing people up so yeah so then so that was when was that that was in sort of early 2017 that second round and then again it's just r remarkable the team did an incredible job at that time we deployed that capital we delivered on the plan that we did we did what we said we were going to do and we grew to 300,000 customers so we added another 250,000 customers by you know in the space of 12 months which was like 10 times faster than what we thought we had would, would do in our original business plan and then that gets us to 2018 when it was kind of like a carbon copy of 2017 but just on a bigger scale we raised 60 million pounds and this time it was from some really there aren't many angels that will write us a 60 million pound check so we went to two institutions and they were by that point i think we demonstrated the sort of results that, that, that Bob, Bob could have as a business i'm almost not surprised you struggled to raise money because if you keep going to them pointing out that you can deliver on plans and make money no wonder they don't have a model for that they're not used to that kind of thing you turn up you know, promising to uh, get a return on your profitable or break-even business. That's almost disgustingly insulting to a venture capitalist. I think by that point, we, we Amit and I had really, we thought much, we had much more clarity on the 10-year mission and goal, goals for the company. And investors could see the scale that we, that we wanted to achieve. They could see the technology that we'd built. Uh, that was really different from, from what other other companies were using, and so there was more. It was yeah, it was there was more of a reason to to invest at that stage. So yeah, that's that, and that was that's the last funding round we did. So we haven't raised for a couple of years because Bulb has been able to reinvest profits that it's making from existing customers into the the, the growth of the. And do you have any any plans to do any future fundraising or? I'd imagine I'd, I'd you know weirdly even though even though the valuation would be obviously outrageous I could so see you guys as a, a crowdfunding you know community led or customer led round I guess the ship has ship has almost sailed on that but yeah totally I mean I would I would buy into that I could really see it it's the right kind of brand for that I think I think there's ways in which we could do it we would we would love to give our members an opportunity to to invest in bulb i think there's things that we can use the funds for which would be really would have a direct effect on carbon emissions so if our members could in, invest in bulb and we could deploy that capital for renewable energy projects then that would be i think that would be that would be a really good relationship that we would have with with those with those customers the, the other thing that would require capital in the future would probably be international expansion which would be another reason to to raise more funding but yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the last two years of, of not fundraising and focusing on the, the operations of the company and, and how we can deliver better service to our members and make a better product. That's the that's where we spend a lot of our time. Fair enough. 
Um, let's go on to you as a leader. Um, obviously, you know, you came up with the, uh, I guess, the typical background in, in going into consulting. And then, you know, you're starting a business on a spreadsheet and by hook or by crook, you're coming across remarkably meticulous. First person I've ever heard of creating a plan and achieving it, for example. And bear in mind that I've interviewed almost every single major founder in the UK. That's not the normal story. So are you a perfectionist? Uh, what kind of leader do you think you are? Have, has that developed over time? And how do you handle uh, failure and when things aren't going so well? How do you think you present yourself to the world and the team? And how has that developed? Yeah, so this, I mean, this is, this is where I think I have, a, have really struggled, to be honest, I found I found it this job, I, I found very difficult. And I feel like I'm really just at the early stages of my learning on on how to do it i think i do have tendencies to be a perfectionist uh, for sure and i think it is helpful sometimes but generally unhelpful i think that you you're always striving to make something better to add value to a process to improve things to to make the product experience better, better for customers and that drive i think individual drive gets gets you a long way at the start of, of a company but it can become unhelpful when you're leading 800 people um, which is now the number of people that, that, that work at Bolt because you have to you have to not let that perfectionism get in the way of excellence and sometimes you don't need to you know sometimes one particular thing within the company is just is okay as it is and you need to focus your energies elsewhere so that's the, th the one of the things that I'm personally really really working on and trying to trying to learn and improve and, and exercise. I think the other thing that's really changed for me personally is, as you say, like quite meticulous, I, I, you know, I used to pride myself on being able to understand everything within the business and go from the minutiae of the indentation of like type on our website, all the way up to strategic like fundraising discussions. I guess I, yeah, I remember reading the Steve Jobs book when I was on holiday once thinking, yeah, this is, this, this guy, this is what you've got to do, right? You've got to like obsess over the kerning of on fonts. And that, that just doesn't work for me and hasn't worked for me for the last like year and a half, two years, probably, um, because it's very difficult for other people to work <laughs> with someone like that. So I've gone from being a leader of a small team of like six people where I sort of had a direct relationship with everyone to then being a manager of different of managers. And now I'm kind of like, yeah, the manager of managers of managers. And, and in, in doing that, you just have to, you have to change the way you, the way you are, you have to change the types of conversations you have with people and you have to trust people, respect their judgment, give them a, you know, give, give them the time uh, that they have in their in their jobs to, to execute their plan the way they want to execute it. And yeah, that's uh, that's been a massive learning experience for me over the last over the last couple of years. What is an example of the most challenging leadership crisis, or uh, that might even be personal confidence crisis that you've experienced in your business? Because it's a lot of scale in a short period of time. It's a lot of money, it's a lot of customers, it's a lot of growth. So, you know, there's a lot of up and to the right. And I guess, you know, 
any rational person is going to be uh you know conflicted over how you're making decisions over those times and how disagreements and relationships will impact you so what are some of the highlights that you can give as almost um stories or warnings to other founders that might go and experience similar things um to give some insights from how you you overcame them well there's one there's one particular problem that we had as a company that was extremely important to us and it took us a really long time to work out how to how to solve so after taking the third funding round in 2018 we grew rapidly we grew so quickly that the service that we were providing to our customers started to get worse so we were slower to respond to emails and answer the phone and that was really bad because we'd always we'd founded bulb on the principles of providing outstanding customer service and so I saw this big problem for the company and got really involved in solving that issue. And I went about it with all the, all the numbers and was trying, I basically screwed this up. I worked out in a model, like the best way to, for us to provide service. And then no one else in the company wanted to do it. It was like really scary. The solution to this in the end was do you remember that person that i talked about before that worked at google who who uh you know said hayden you're doing it wrong on um <laughs> search advertising we managed to convince joe to leave google and join bulb and joe for the last almost year has been leading bulb uk and has uh, along with his excellent leadership team has solved our service issue a problem that i could not solve and on that one a couple of times, I hope Joe doesn't mind me talking about this publicly. It's quite personal conversations that we had. But a couple of times, Joe said, Look, "Just back off. Let me let me do this." And it was it was against every instinct in my body to back off because this is a thing that I've just got in. I've been involved in everything from the start, but I did, I think. And Joe and the team did an incredible job and now Bulb is providing the best customer service it's, it's ever provided at a time of, you know, at a time during lockdown, which is, <laughs> which is uh, really uh, an extraordinary achievement from, from Joe and the team. And that meant that, that, you know, the ultimately I just had to, as he said, back off. And how's your relationship developed with Amit then over the time? Are you guys, uh, you know, do you guys have a different relationship? You know, you were friends and I'm, I'm also curious, I guess, you know, in my own personal experience, I've also started, you know, my company with one of my best friends, our third, actually. And so, you know, I, I understand that that relationship tends to develop quite differently from a traditional friendship. But even as uh, co-founders, how has that developed over time? Like, do you, uh, how, how do you spend time together? How are you handling lockdown apart? Um, it'd be great to get an understanding of that. Yeah, I think it's really, you have to really invest in it, in, in the relationship. And I think that Amit and I have made a deliberate effort recently to spend more time together to debate things much more because it, you know, now, now we're two members of a 10 person leadership team. And I think it's, I think it's, it's good to, to go back and have those spend time when it's just the two of you. So we've been, we've been making a concerted effort to do much more of that. And I think, I think that's actually been really 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 helpful the other thing that happens is because there's just so much more going on you do you ended you end up like divide dividing stuff up between the two of you because you need to have two 
you know one of you will take one thing one of you will take the other and that's that's a good that's a more efficient distribution of you know, or allocation of your, your your time but then that does mean that you maybe don't work together on on things as much so i've really enjoyed working on on those things together more Obviously, building a startup, you know, let alone building the fastest growing scale up in the UK, you know, that often takes quite a toll on people's mental health, physical health, uh, family life, sacrifices, the works. What do you think uh, has been your experience of that? Like, what would you say have been your sacrifices and how have you actually handled uh, staying in shape mentally and physically? Yeah, so I'm I've had I get depressed. That's the thing that I've experienced since. I think the first time it happened to me, I was in my my mid twenties, and then having a quarter life crisis, and then then it happened to me again a few years after that. And I've had three really bad bouts of of, of depression where I was on medication and going through therapy, and that's made me much more aware of my mental health and my physical health and the relationship between those two things. And since co-founding Bold, I've always been very, very careful with my mental health. But I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying. It's it's exhausting. Uh, the pressure is, you know, unrelenting. I, I think that without the support of my friends and family, and especially my wife Flora, I would not have been able to. I, I wouldn't have survived this. Have you had? Have you actually had any bouts of uh, of depressive episodes during your period with Bulb? No, I haven't. I've seen the early warning signs of it, and I've I've re- really managed it carefully. But but ever since that first time when I just didn't I didn't really understand what was going on, and it just got worse and worse and worse. Ever since then, I've been really lucky in that I can sort of spot the signs where I'm things aren't right and um and I've, I've managed to avoid it but yeah i think i think it you know the thing one of the things i, I think i I'm, want to talk about i think people need to talk about more is is the pressure that this puts on people's on the people around you on your you know on, on your partner on your on, on your family like that's it's really hard for them too um and you know you you, you read about bulbs growth and you think, oh, what a what a success story! It must everything must have been plain sailing. But you know, I have made hundreds and hundreds of mistakes, and I feel terrible about that because it has impact on people's lives, people's jobs, people's people's own mental well being. Um, and so I, I I kind of carry that that load really he- heavily, and I find that that to be yeah very very d- difficult thing to do. But so also such a privilege to be to be doing this job and i think we do whilst it is pressurizing we i think we, what we try and do is have some some fun at work while while we're doing this right and i think you make you make such a great point as well um you know just discussing the pressure i mean ultimately one or two wrong moves and people lose their jobs their families, like the amount of, uh, you know, having failed a startup myself, um, having to let go of 48 people, you know what that feels like. And it is a highly depressive scenario because people are relying on you and you feel it. 
um, and you feel like you've let people down and it really sits with you for quite a long time. And, you know, like you're saying, when you've got 800 people to manage, uh, one wrong decision might wipe out 400 jobs. Equally, if it's the right decision, it might create 800 jobs, but that's a super stressful reality to live with. And it's a really interesting psychological dilemma that, you know, anyone going through your kind of growth that, you know, naturally is going to face. I think it's a really important thing that you're highlighting it. One of the things, what well, just hearing you say that has made me, reminded me of something that I was talking about with my therapist a few weeks ago, which is that you kind of, you think that all of the decisions that you, that you're making have that effect and some of them might, but actually very often you're, you're, you know, you're getting very nervous about these decisions and you can't pick between A and B. And, and so you end up spending a huge amount of time and mental energy trying to do that. And actually <laughs> the reason, the reason it's hard to pick between A and B is because the results in both situations are kind of the same. And actually, you can you can invest a huge amount of worry and, and energy into these decisions, and it just doesn't matter. You just got to, you just just pick one and don't don't let it don't let it feel so heavy. So that's another that's that's one of the things that I that doing this job you, you kind of you're constantly making these decisions and, and it's sort of training your brain into thinking if you make this decision, it's going to have this result, and actually you have to kind of challenge that assumption regularly. Yeah, as a good good example of your ego being your your worst enemy, when actually uh, you know it's trying to protect you and trying to protect others, but ultimately giving you this sort of sense of uh, grandiosity of importance that doesn't necessarily exist. Before we move on to you know some of the higher points, I mean, just you know whilst whilst we're here and sitting in in the memories again, like it's important people understand um, the roller coaster journey that it actually is behind the scenes. What have actually been your lowest points or hardest points on your journey at Bulb then? I would say it's very often communication when I'm communicating things to the to the company, and I answer a question because we have these you know weekly Q and As. I'll answer a question in the Q and A. I'll give a bad answer. Um, I won't have taken something into account. Those feel bad because you 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 know you can have a bad effect on on people with those things. I mean, really specifically, there was a moment last year when we would, as a service business, we wanted to provide service to our members on the weekend. And it was just very, very hard to to make a shift from just from our team just working on a Monday to Friday to providing service on, on the weekend. That was one of the, the most difficult experiences of my life because we knew what we where we wanted to get to, but there was such a difference between, I guess, between me and the other people in the, in the company. Again, it's one of the, it's one of the remarkable things about where we are today is that now we, we provide service at the weekends and people are really happy about it. And it's, it's a great result, but you know, at the time we were, we, we weren't there and it was, it was really, really hard. Well, I guess, you know, a good opportunity for you to reflect on the upsides as well. So, you know, that was, uh, you know, one of the harder moments, what have been the really positive ones that you want to reflect on that help you glow at Bulb? I mean, there's so many. When you see people find their metier and enjoy their work, that's probably the happiest moments for, for, for me. 
there's a woman that, that works at Bulb called Erin Bullions, and she joined Bulb out of university. And she's an incredible person, incredibly talented, such, such, you know, wonderful ethics. She's a great motivator of her teams. And to see Erin just, you know, be promoted, you know, time after time after time, and now leading an entire sort of division of people within the company makes, you know, makes you really, really happy to, to think that you and a bunch of other people have created an environment in which, in which people can, can have that type of job. And like, for me, I really enjoy work. I think that work is a really fun and rewarding part of our lives and, and to create a place of work that, that fulfills that purpose for, for other people is, yeah, is really rewarding. Okay, what's been the worst decision or mistake you think you've made as a CEO and what do you think you learned from it? Obviously, learning's nothing, but what was your worst mistake? I think it's what I was talking about before, this announcement where we said, look, we're going we're gonna to move to providing service on Saturdays. This is how it's going to work. We now spend a lot of time thinking about communication and how it cascades within the company so that there aren't just these announcements that come from me or other members of the senior leadership team and instead uh, they're more gradual and they're, they're shared um, in one-on-ones and you know within teams and then there's a message that comes uh, from the company i think that's I, i'd always sort of thought oh god this stuff just takes up time why do we need to why do we need to spend time thinking about change can't we just make it make a decision and and and, uh, and move fast and that's that, that wasn't the right way for us do you think do you think that the pandemic's been quite good timing for you in a sense of sounds like it sort of coincided roughly uh with the weekend working vibe and frankly now there's so much change uh that everyone is is forced to handle whether they like it or not it's almost like a good time to be managing changes that are happening in a business anyway as people start to understand how to adapt I, I, you know looking at the way the the, the team at Bold responded to the, the covid lockdown globally is i have so much admiration for, for what the team did with that um on the 13th of March in the UK, we closed the office. We were providing remote service to our members on the 14th. I think it was the company's finest hour to make that transition at such speed. We were eight, during lockdown, the, even the early stages, we were able to provide, you know, there was no increase in wait times for our members. We were able to, we created completely new products for bold members in vulnerable situations who weren't able to leave their homes and top up their their prepay energy cards and things like that. It was the company turned on a sixpence and it was just incredible to see the shared purpose and resolve from that team. I don't know. I mean, obviously I would rather there was, there hadn't been a lockdown and we've had lots of exciting plans that we've had to mothball, but seeing, seeing the response from everyone on the team to that was, was really quite inspiring. I think one of the things I didn't, appreciate when Amit and I were founding Bulb was the importance of our company's mission in attracting just outstanding people to join the company. But for us, the mission was just important for us personally. And we thought that it would be meaningful to create a company that was going to solve a problem just for wider society. But I don't, what I didn't realize was that that would then mean that we would be able to recruit 
wonderful people to, to work in the company. And then those wonderful people, you know, respond the, in the way they did during lockdown, which is in a caring, uh, considered, really, really heartwarming way. Right. Almost wrapping up now. Um, I've got to ask a couple of hard questions for you, but you know. Are you telling me that the other ones haven't been hard? These have been easy. No, no, in fairness, these are only hard because they put you on the spot, which I think is probably your least favourite uh, thing is what I've ascertained from uh, from our interview together. <laughs> uh, the, the first is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Is it, if you're deserted on a desert island, bring a bath? Don't take a bath. One of the things I do, by the way, is seek out as much advice as I can possibly get. There's people that have, have seen it and done it before, and they're extremely generous with their time actually that's one of the best bits of advice that i've, I've got is uh i've received is is um is to not be not be shy about asking people for for advice because they will they will share it very often and it's very very helpful to receive it okay and then the final bit is uh what's the best piece of advice that you have for entrepreneurs and leaders that are listening in today so not something that you've learned from a family member or other brilliant mind, but just your own classic book of Hayden Wood. Oh my God, good grief. This is just something, this is just a mistake that I've made. So I'm sharing it. You know, be open to different solutions, to different problems. And as a founder, if you have a bit of success in the first few years, you can begin to think that you are, <laughs> that you are, that you're always right. And that is a very dangerous sort of mindset to be in. So, so be very, yeah, be very open to being wrong. Dude, thank you for your time. Great to speak to you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Bye. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top there will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer Christina Naru of SmartUpVisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, SecretLeaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we will add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.